Good morning. The Bible reading this morning is taken from Joshua chapter 20. Joshua chapter 20, commencing at verse 1. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Tell the Israelites to designate the cities of refuge as I instructed you through Moses, so that anyone who kills a person accidentally or unintentionally may flee there and find protection from the avenger of blood. When he flees to one of these cities, he is to stand in the entrance of the city gate and state his case before the elders of that city. Then they are to admit him into their city and give him a place to live with them. If the avenger of blood pursues him, they must not surrender the one accused because he killed his neighbour unintentionally and without malice aforethought. He is to stay in that city until he has stood trial before the assembly and until the death of the high priest who is serving at that time. Then he may go back to his own home in the town from which he fled. So they set apart Kedesh in Galilee in the hill country of Naphtali, Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim, and Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the hill country of Judah. On the east side of the Jordan of Jericho, they designated Beza in the desert on the plateau in the tribe of Reuben, Ramoth in Gilead, in the tribe of Gad, and Golan in Bashan in the tribe of Manasseh. Any of the Israelites or any alien living among them who killed someone accidentally could flee to these designated cities and not be killed by the avenger of blood prior to standing trial before the assembly. May the Lord bless the reading of his word today. Morning, everyone. Just before I pray, the, you've uh, spoken about Colhood and prayed for him and um, Sharon in hospital. Prayed for her. So you know about Sharon? Yep. Back in hospital again with heart issues or chest pain, certainly. Um, <clears throat> there are also two little girls. Uh, One we prayed for a couple of weeks ago, her name was Joelle, the little four-year-old girl who has a tumour in her liver. Uh, She has started chemotherapy and the uh, the tumour has spread or grown to her uh, diaphragm uh, but has had a couple of bouts of uh, chemotherapy but is more ongoing and the family are now living with other family members in Brisbane uh, for the next, well, several months. to make sure that the treatment is hopefully successful. Let's keep praying for Joelle, little four-year-old girl. And there was a little girl, little baby, five weeks old last Sunday, I mentioned uh, Sienna Rose. And she had like two holes in her heart and they operated and they've closed up the little one, but the bigger one they've left and she has to go back for more operations and it looks like she'll have to, in fact, undergo future surgeries as well of heart, heart valve replacements every, between every five and ten years. So that'll be an ongoing experience for that little one. The doctors were very surprised, apparently, that she even survived without the operation for the first five weeks of her life. So she is now, I think, out of hospital 
um, but has this in front of her. So I continue to pray for the family, the Rose family. Um, and the mum particularly uh, knows Jesus, certainly knows about Jesus, uh, but has drifted a little bit. Uh, and so it's important for her to get back in line with you know, God's will and intention and relationship with him. So pray for them. And then this morning we got this announcement as well. That there is a young family, a young lady rather, a young mum, who has two boys who's aged six and eight, and I don't know the circumstances, uh, but uh, she's had to relocate, and all she has to her name now is quite literally a suitcase. So she's looking for anything and any way that we can assist her. So if you have any white goods or furniture appliances or linen or anything that you can help with, um, I'm not sure of the response after the first service. I know that there was one person who said that they had a fridge which they could offer. So that's helpful. So likewise, I pass it on to you. If you are aware of um, someone or if you yourself have something, come and see me and I'll pass it on. It's either Paul or Wayne and Suzanne Weiler are the family to contact. Um, you may or you may not know those guys. But that would be good if we could assist in some way. Um, I can't give you any more details um, about the situation. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the opportunity we have to be able to come to read and to listen to your word and to think about it and to respond to it. We acknowledge, Lord, that through this process you choose to advance your work in our lives, in our church and in the world. So we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit. And, Lord, we come before you listening. Lord, speak to us, we pray. And likewise, we commit the folk that we've mentioned to you too. We pray for Sharon in hospital, that the doctors would diagnose correctly and that they will be able to move forward at your direction, that she might be um, assisted, that she might return to much better health. Be with Phil and Savannah likewise as they uh, cope with the extra stresses of that. And then, Lord, for these two little kids, for Joelle and Siana, um, Thank you for the success of the operation with Siana. And Lord, we do pray for little Joelle that the chemotherapy might be used by you to reduce the tumour, that she might then be able to have it removed through operation. And we ask, Lord, that in both of these families you might be ministering your grace and using your people to surround and demonstrate your love for them. Um, Lord, we likewise thank you for Colin's success of his operation and pray for this young mum that you'll provide for her needs and that she might see your hand in that and she might move closer to you. Lord, we pray that for these folk and for ourselves to be in line and close to you. We pray in Jesus' name. And everybody said? Slides on the screen. Here we go. Joshua chapter 20 is a... <clears throat> I'll give you a little bit of a history lesson on the first part of this this morning and then I want to come back and apply it. There's not much value in doing history unless it's got application to our life. And this passage certainly needs some explanation. Um, in this, two things to note just right at the beginning. Number one, uh, God speaks to Joshua in verses 1, 2 and 3. And the first point is this, that when God does speak to us, he's often directing us back to that which he has already said. He still does that today. That when God speaks to us, whether it's through people, through circumstances, by his spirit into our spirit, through dreams, through whichever way God chooses to communicate, he will often be directing us back to what he has already said, his word. And just like with Joshua here, he will be reminding us with a view to encouraging obedience. 
He's basically saying to Joshua here, Joshua, I've said this to you, I've said it to Moses and I've said it three times before. I'm now saying to you, get on with it. Do that which I have instructed you to do. Designate these cities of refuge. Um, Second point. Um, God is certainly uh, the one who is concerned about justice in our world and in this world it's remarkable, I think, that the Lord even talks in terms of accidents happening. Uh, Verse 3 says, so that anyone who kills a person accidentally... I think sometimes we can go too far or we try to box God into the way we talk and the way we explain things. God is sovereign and God is in control. Don't doubt that. But there are things that happen in this world that are mysteries to us that we do not have divine revelation on and that we cannot presume. So we need to be a little bit more relaxed in our language. I don't know if you've ever been corrected for using the word like an accident and then have a Christian rebuke you or correct you, saying accidents don't happen in this world? Well, the Lord says here that so that anyone who kills a person accidentally, they do happen in this world. God, of course, is talking about the motive of the heart, that it's not prearranged, that it's without malice aforethought in one passage. Um, And there is a distinction to be made that while accidents do happen in this world, and God is a God of justice, uh, in God's economy, when a person... um, intentionally take someone else's life, it's the death penalty, life for life. But God instituted through his law with Moses and the people of Israel a distinction between not just the act but the act and the motive. That it can be the same result that a life is taken. In this one it's intentional, it's murder, but in this one it's accidental. Um, And the illustration is given in Deuteronomy 19 where two men go out into the forest and they're going to cut down trees and He's swinging the axe and the axe axe head accidentally flies off and hits the other person and kills them. It's an accident. It wasn't done deliberately. And yet, if you read the passage and other passages, then you'll go and God can even make a distinction then. If that axe head had flown off before, um, then the person who was using the axe and had not taken measures to secure it, then that person, it's not just an accident, but it's now carelessness. And so the person is charged with like manslaughter. So God makes these distinctions between not just acts but also motives. And we need to be a careful people in this world where accidents happen. All that's by way of background and not related to anything I want to say this morning. I need to give you a history lesson. Oh, that's the different words that are used to talk about this thing of um, accidents can happen. Without previous hatred, they had to examine the heart. The elders, as we'll come to in a moment, of Did this person have an attitude of anger or animosity against this person and they accidentally killed them? If there were these ill feelings before, then it won't look good when you accidentally kill them. Without intent, not a previous enemy. Okay? Moving on. In the ancient world, God was concerned about justice, just as he is in our world today. And God's way of uh, enforcing what was a cultural practice is the Lord accepts this... um, habit of an avenger of blood. You know, right from straight after the flood, God instituted that if someone takes someone else's life, then the death penalty applies. Life for life. By him shall man's blood be shed. Genesis chapter 9 and verse 6. And so in the ancient world, that manifested itself as this practice of the avenger of blood. That someone in the family of the deceased, a close relative or someone who was designated for them, they were given the job to go and pursue the person who had killed their loved one or their relative and it was like for like. 
Now, in our world, it still happens in some cultures today, but typical with sinful human nature, we escalate it, don't we? Someone does something wrong with us, to us, and, but we retaliate, but we tend to up the ante a little bit. Well, it used to happen in the ancient world, and it still does today. Someone kills somebody, so this family has to retaliate, but they don't kill somebody, they kill two people to, to discourage them in the future, and then they retaliate by not killing two, but they kill six, and then they retaliate, and this just goes backwards and forwards for generation after generation. There are cultures like that. You may know some of them. Well, this is not talking about that. This is similar, but the distinction is this, that if a life was taken, then the avenger of blood had the legal right within ancient Israel to take the life of the person who had taken their life. That's it. Full stop. End of story. There's no more retaliation. So the avenger of blood, appointed by the family, their role was to determine who did this and the responsibility was to pursue them, find them and execute them. They were judge, jury, executioner in one, dealt with. That's how it worked in the ancient world. So if you took someone's life accidentally, what would you do? Well, you'd do what Moses did, I would guess. You'd flee the country. You'd go to a place of asylum or something like that. That was one option, but even there you weren't afforded protection. The avenger of blood could follow you, find you and kill you without guilt. He was entitled to do so. Well, linked to this cultural practice, <clears throat> the Lord allows that to continue, but he places um, an alternative, puts something in which allows for mercy and for a distinction between murder, a deliberate act, and an accidental killing to make that distinction, not without penalty, not without limitation, but nonetheless there's a graciousness about us. So let's move on to the next slide. That's the avenger of blood. If you were the person who had done the killing, if you're the accused, then you didn't have to flee. You could stay home, wait for the avenger of blood, come knocking and then they could kill you and short circuit and save everybody a whole lot of trouble. But if you were innocent and you knew you were innocent, then God instituted, this is God's idea, Certain locations, certain cities throughout Israel where you could flee for safety. They were called cities of refuge in the passage that we read. And if you were the accused, that's what you would do. Off you would go, 20, 30 miles from wherever you were living. They were all you know, equally distant, so to speak. They were accessible to all. So when you arrived at the city, you would stand at the entrance of the city gate, address the elders. You would state your wrongs. This is what I have done. It was an accident. They would examine you in some quick capacity and then they would grant you admittance, assuming they accepted your story, and you would then have to stay in the city. So you were confined to house arrest. You were safe but limited. You're in prison but in the city. You had freedom to walk around in the city but you couldn't leave it. Numbers 35 verse 26 draws attention to the fact that in one of, these many, one of these four passages, the Lord says, but if a person leaves the city, then he comes back under the possibility of the avenger of blood coming and taking his life without guilt. This is just the history and the cultural practice behind this passage. Yep, next. And so the elders of the city, they had various responsibilities. Their first one was that they were to prepare the way. Deuteronomy 19 says they had to build roads that came into these six cities. The roads had to be not only built, but they had to be repaired regularly. It, um, the Jewish commentaries, the Talmud talks about how they would send out an annual road gang to remove um, 
boulders that had fallen from hills into the roadway or trees that had collapsed or potholes that had come. They would fix up the roads and keep them as level as they could to make them as accessible as possible for anybody excuse me, who needed to use them. Elders, the people of the city, the elders of the city, it was their responsibility. They had to hear and decide the case. Having decided in favour, they also had to have some forms of location available where people who were the accused could go and stay and stay sometimes for a significant number of years. Um, and then having granted access, it's temporary access, then they would call an assembly. And it's a bit confusing whether the assembly was held in their own city or whether in fact they returned to the city or whether murder or the crime had been committed. But either way, there was an assembly where there would be witnesses, two or three witnesses to establish the case and there was a process to follow through as God outlined it. So the avenger of blood, the accused, the elders. Next slide. Something for us to note is just simply the location of these cities, which is quite deliberate in God's mind and in his communication to his people. The River Jordan divided the land that Israel now possessed. And so on both sides of the river, God puts in three cities, one up north, one in the central region, and one down south. And so that was for ease of access. In Deuteronomy 19, in fact, it even talks about how if Israel expands their land, their country, they are to add more cities of refuge for ease of access for people who are living within that distance. Okay? This is God's idea of providing justice, closeness and so on. Next slide. God's one rule applied for all of the Israelites, but for everybody else, Jew and Gentile, everybody came under this guideline or this rule. Whether you were a sojourner, a person who had moved to Israel and had been Gentile background, but you had said, I want to belong to the covenant people of God. Aliens is an old translation, not a good one, because we tend to think of people from Mars or out of space, I guess. But if they did exist and if they did come and they lived here, then they would come under this rule too. Um, or Deuteronomy 35 verse 15 talks about this threefold distinction. Israelites, visitors, sojourners and others trying to deliberately say, everybody's included. Everybody comes under God's rule and God's direction. Next slide. Um, the person who fled to the city, their confinement to the city, their safety, in fact, is very closely linked to the life and to the death of the high priest who was the high priest at that time. It's almost like a uh, statute of limitations existed without actually saying how many years it would be. It was, in fact, linked to the life of a person. When the high priest died, the rule says, the law says here, uh, that then those who were in the cities of refuge, those who had fled there for safety, were then free. The high priest's death released people from their banishment, from their exile, and they were free to return home. It's a theologically significant point, isn't it? We'll come back to that in just a moment. And so the high priest also, by his life, as long as he lived, guaranteed the safety and security of the people within the city of refuge. So by the life and by the death of the high priest determined the safety, the location, the security, the peace of those who had fled to the cities of refuge. Next. Last point I think I want to make. And it's only those cities, those six cities that God had appointed, which in fact could be places of refuge. You couldn't just go to any city. You had to go to the ones that God had picked, that God had designated. But, uh, what, that's the history lesson. What does all of this mean for us? Well, I think that contains significant 
um, spiritual application to these truths, these six cities typify, represent, give us a, a picture of a God who is a saviour, of a God who wants to redeem, who wants to enter into a relationship with people, even people who have done wrong things, that God wants to uh, provide atonement, forgiveness. And here are some truths that come out of that. Number one, just like these cities of refuge were appointed by God, so our Saviour, the Lord Jesus, because these are pictures of him ultimately, that he is our refuge. Hebrews 6 verse 18 will tell us that we have fled to Jesus as our refuge for the hope which is set before us, a hope which is like an anchor to our soul, sure and steadfast. Jesus is our refuge, appointed by God. That's God's idea. It's his initiative. This idea of the cities of refuge and the idea of a saviour, a refuge for us as guilty sinners, is birthed in the heart of God. It's without parallel in the ancient world. No other culture or nation had this concept or this idea. And it's his initiative. God is the one who thought of it. God is the one who has planned it. God is the one who has executed it. He's put it in place. Which is why in Joshua chapter 22 is the fourth time that God has said to Moses and the people of Israel, I want you to do this. I want you to do this. I want you to do this. And to Joshua, will you do what what I've been saying? God deliberately, intentionally, it's important to him. And the truth is certainly applicable to us. Appointed by God. Number two, it's available to all. The cities of refuge were available to all and as a picture of God's refuge, our redemption through Jesus, the Messiah, that's likewise available to all. The locations of the cities demonstrate that, that nobody was too far away from any particular city that they could get there within about a day's travel. So no matter who you are, no matter what you have done, Israelite, Jew, um, they're the same, uh, alien, sojourner, visitor, coming into the land, doesn't matter who you are or what you have done, there was an opportunity for you to find refuge if you did something wrong and you're prepared to admit it. So too for us. There is an opportunity for us, if we're willing to admit it, to find refuge and forgiveness in the God who puts these refuges in place, open to all condition of admission is admitting I need help I need forgiveness it's accessible to all, the next point Um, as I just said to every Israelite, to everybody living in the land whether Gentile or wherever they were from, so it doesn't matter who you are no matter where you are and what you've done or no matter who you are this is available and accessible to you this is also physically demonstrated because the cities of refuge were in very visible places they were prominent If you read carefully into verse 7, you'll notice that the three cities that are on the western side are all on hills. What did Jesus say about a city set on a hill? Not easily hidden. It's prominent. You can see it from a long way off and you can move your way towards it. Even at night time, you'd be able to see these white limestone houses. They stood out. So they're prominent. They were prepared. The way has been prepared both for the the accused, the criminal in the ancient world, but uh, the way is prepared for us. Uh, Jesus is prominent. He's very well known and known about. It's very clear uh, who he is and what he came to do. Not everybody believes it, nor does everybody know it, but that's our job, that we are to help him to be prominent. Prepared, the roads were prepared and cleared, Uh, houses were made available. Uh, There were even directions very clearly. There were signposts 
What would you do if you were running, you'd killed somebody accidentally and you're running to the city of refuge, you can see it in the distance and you come to these crossroads, which way do I go? Well, at that point, the rabbis talk about how there were signposts placed, city of refuge, this way. So you didn't have to hesitate or delay. You would go as quickly as you possibly could. God has prepared the way for those who are guilty to find their way to a refuge, to find safety. And I like the, love the third one. It's perpetual. The gates of the city of refuge were permanently open, day and night, that the one who was accused, the one who had done wrong, could find refuge at any time of day. How true that is also for us spiritually. The Lord Jesus Christ is the one these cities point to. He is appointed by God. He is available to all and he is accessible to all. And it's partly our job. Next slide. And maybe the one after that as, as well. The Lord Jesus is visible, accessible and available. He's waiting for us to come in two senses as I'll come to. He's waiting for us to come to him for salvation and his arms are extended. You take one step towards him, he'll take several towards you. And it's our job as followers of the Lord Jesus, in fact, to be like those signposts. We are the signposts pointing to him as the city of refuges. He is the one who is the saviour. Our job, Charles Spurgeon says is to make the Lord Jesus Christ visible, desirable and attractive. Visible, people that are to see Jesus living in us, individually, corporately. Desirable, by the way that we act and attractive, by the changes that have happened in us. Visible, desirable and attractive to the world around us. That's our job as followers of the Lord Jesus. Next slide. Many commentators have, uh, not all, but many have picked up on the truth or this aspect of this passage where even the names of the cities that have been chosen by God, when you look at the meaning of their Hebrew name, even that carries some sort of spiritual significance for us. This is always, I think, difficult to do. Many people try to do it on just about every word in nearly every passage. I don't think that's safe. But this one does lend itself, a bit like Genesis 5, just leading up to the flood. So this one, because of the cities of refuge, because they were mentioned four times by God, perhaps there is some deeper truth, you know, related behind those who would want to seek and find. These cities of refuge, if they do, are pictures pointing to the Redeemer, to our refuge from the wrath of God then what are the benefits, what are the characteristics that he has and what happens to us when we're in relationship with him? Well, so that's what the words mean. So then it's a matter of, well, how do you apply that? Well, the city of Kadesh means, Kadesh means holy or righteous. Well, Jesus is holy and righteous, but he also imputes that to us. And he's the king who was a righteous king. Shechem is, means shoulder picture like someone who's carrying a burden. Well, our Redeemer carried our burden of sin. But he's also the ruler who has the government on his shoulder. He's the holy, righteous ruler who carries our burden, who calls us into fellowship with himself, who brings us into a safe place. And if it's a fortified place, the next word, ranoth, means also exalted. That as we come into a relationship with him, we are secure and he places us, we sit with him in the heavenly places, exalted on high. And in his presence, in fellowship with him, we experience joy and rejoicing. Now, perhaps that's a legitimate application of those words. Um, I just offer it to you. Moving on. 
What does all of this mean for us? Number one, we all need a refuge, all of us. Regardless of our station and position in life, we are a people who are born into world under sin and we are under the penalty of death. We commit sin because we are born sinful. We aren't born on probation. We aren't born innocent. And then we commit sin and then we become sinners. It's the other way around. We are born under condemnation. We are born under sin and the penalty of death. And the avenger of blood is after us. That's true for all people in this world. One preacher once said, it's like God has taken his bow and he's fitted his arrow and he's bent it and he's taking aim and he's aiming at you. And if you don't find yourself within the city of refuge, within his refuge before he dispenses his justice, then you will find yourself under condemnation, under judgment forever. It's a good analogy and it's a truthful reminder to us that we need to flee to God to find forgiveness for our sin. And the cities of refuge are a picture of that, that there is refuge in God with his people. It's not enough to simply know about these um, cities of refuge, uh, to know that they exist or to admire them from a distance. You have to actually enter them, just like the accused did. You have to flee to them. You have to uh, admit your wrongs in order to enter in and to find acceptance. So too for us. Now that's true for us, for those of us who are yet to become followers of Jesus. But many of you here this morning have already done that. Well, it's also true for us as followers of Jesus that we need to flee to him, we need to find ourselves in him when we are tempted, when we are troubled, when we are being tested or there are trials in our life, he is still a strong refuge for us. Psalm 46 verse 1 says, um, the Lord is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says that when we are tempted, God provides a way of escape. He's our refuge, you see. It's in this close relationship with him. We all need that and we will continue to need it. Number two, God has provided such a refuge for us in the person of the Lord Jesus that in him we find life, hope, a fresh start. And as I said before, it's not just enough to know it. You have to actually implement it. You need to come to him to confess your sins, to pray as a follower of his, to ask for his assistance and help. Number three, we all need a refuge and one has been provided. And having fled to Christ as our refuge, we must, excuse me, we must abide in him. Just as the accused must remain within the city for safety, so we must likewise remain in Christ. John 15, 5 and 6 says, the Lord Jesus says, Abide in me and you will bring forth fruit. Without me you can do nothing. Verse 6 But if you don't abide in me, if you don't remain in me, then you will be cast forth, cast out, where you will wither. All of the withered branches will be gathered together and then they'll be thrown into the fire. It's our vitality of our relationship with him. We never lose that. The God who is desirous to have a relationship with us demonstrates that through the cities of refuge in the ancient world pointing to our ultimate city of refuge, our refuge in Jesus. And it's in him that we find rightness, forgiveness, security, safety, 
And our relationship with this refuge is likewise another metaphor, but it's linked with um, our high priest. Jesus is our high priest. In, as he lives, so in him we have security. It's in his death that we are released from our banishment. It's in knowing him personally. Well, that's easy for us to understand and apply individually. But there is another dimension to this, I think, that's worth thinking more about. And that is that we follow Jesus and come to him personally, but the church is also the body of Christ and represents him in the world. And so we come not just to Jesus, but we also come to the church. That in Jesus we have a refuge, but the church is likewise to be a refuge. That when the church is being what the church ought to be, the body of Christ, and the body of Christ will be a refuge. We all need a refuge in Jesus personally, but also in the church. God has provided such a refuge in Jesus, but also in the church, his community. And that we must abide in him, but also in the church. There is this corporate application. What are the implications of that? Well, just to suggest to you this that if the church corporately is to be like a city of refuge, then people who come to us, the gates of the city must be left open. People must find ready acceptance. So we need to examine ourselves. Are we being a people who are building bridges or putting up walls? Do people come amongst us and able to find that acceptance, that forgiveness in their relationships in the church? It's easy to be critical of the church, isn't it? And if you're a person here this morning and you've been in a church and you've never been hurt by somebody in the church, then you are a rare individual because we live in a fallen world where accidents do happen, where people do say and do things which are hurtful or harmful to others. And we have either done it or we've been on the receiving end of it. And the reality is probably both are true for us. We still need Jesus as our refuge, but we also need the church to be a refuge. And we need the church to be as best as she can be as a city of refuge, a light on a hill for the community that others would find Jesus and his community as attractive, as desirable, as a place that they want to be part of. That they, This is a place where God changes lives and God is in the transforming business of changing people's lives to be conformed to the image of Jesus. So question. Have you come to Jesus as a refuge personally? Have you done that in your life? Most of you have. Perhaps there are some this morning who haven't. I encourage you to think about it. Do it today. God has bent his bow, fitted his arrow. You need to find yourself refuged in Jesus before you leave this world. What about us as a church? Are you doing your bit as a member of our church, a part of our community, to have the doors open, to connect, to build a bridge, to find other people who are hurting, who are struggling, who have issues where they, through confessing whatever, the wrongs they have done, will find acceptance, will find a place to stay, will find uh, provisions made for them. Are we as a church building the road so that it's smooth and easy for people to come to? Are we as a church being a signpost, pointing the way to Jesus, the refuge? They're all good applications and questions for us to consider.
I'm going to lead you in a prayer. Let's pray. Lord, we want to thank you, firstly, that you have blessed us by giving us your word and that you've not only spoken in the past, but you continue to speak and that you direct us back to that which you have recorded and invite us to obedience. So, Lord, may we be a people who are listening and responding. We thank you for Jesus as our city of refuge, the one that you have appointed, the one who is accessible to all, the one who is available. Lord, I pray for the folk here this morning who may not have made that decision or that trip, who haven't appeared in his presence confessing their sin and their need of forgiveness. And I pray that you might draw them, make it very clear of what needs to happen, that they might come to him, talk with him and find acceptance in him. And Lord, I pray finally for us as a corporate body of followers of you, that you might help us to be a city on a hill, for the light to be clearly shining in our community, for the doors to be open, for the way to be easy, and for us to do our part in welcoming in the stranger, the visitors, that all together might experience refuge in your presence. We thank you that you have blessed us and provided for us. Keep us in close relationship with you. We know this is your will and your desire, and so we ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen.